All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Microcast, a production of the American Society of Microbiology, the Texas Medical Center chapter. We're back again with our next episode. So we're going to do this episode on something a little exciting. So my name is Aisha. I'm Alex. I'm Celso. And this episode is going to be titled two things, maybe the next big (laughs) pandemic, maybe the infectious disease apocalypse. So Alex, do you want to give a little bit about what this episode is going to be about? So in this episode, we're going to start off with some of the um, epidemics or pandemics we have seen in the past or in the very recent present, and then we're going to move on to talking about how um, different groups of organisms, whether it is is bacteria, viruses, or fungi, can become the next pandemic and why they will become the next pandemic. And then, most excitingly for all the science fiction fans out there, uh, we're going to go over some science fiction movies um, that deal with epidemics, mm-hmm. like... Um, pandemics, I guess. Yeah, yeah. pandemics. Mm-hmm. Apocalyptic yeah, pandemic. movies. Exactly, yeah. like Contagion, <laughs> World War Z, and... 28 20, Days Later. 28 Days yes. Later. And then talk about like whether it, it was scientifically sound, um, and just kind of discuss about um, how the epidemic was portrayed in the movie. Yeah. Right. Because I'm sure we've all even seen movies like I Am Legend or Planet of the Apes. Uh So regardless of what actually happens in the movie, I guess they all start with the same premise where there's a new strain of a pathogen that mutates something like a virus or something that's re-engineered. It's fatal, lethal, spreads fast, kills a lot of people. So today we thought it would be a good way to take advantage of things like that to talk about basic microbiology. Mm -hmm. What makes a pathogen a good pathogen? Um, so just to go into the terminology, there's a lot of important public health terminology that people have probably heard on the news, but what exactly is the difference between certain these t- uh, some of these terms? So for example, let's start with the word endemic. So an endemic is a disease that is permanently dominant in a certain geographic location. So it's always problematic in a particular region consistently. So essentially, this is a disease that's always at a baseline and predictable. So you know how many people are going to be impacted by it at any given time. Right. Um, so an example is malaria, for example, a neglected tropical disease that is endemic to certain parts of Africa. Now, an epidemic is the next level, which is essentially an outbreak or a sudden surge in the number of expected disease cases. So any variation or a spike from endemic uh, where you no longer are you know, matching whatever the baseline is. So this could be greater than zero cases or greater than 100 cases. Right. So even if you have like 100 people affected by malaria in a given population, and then, you know, something happens where you now have 10,000, like, that's a problem. Um, And then the key being that the outbreak is defined to a very specific limited geographic area. And, for example, a good example would be SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome outbreak that was defined as a really destructive pandemic that nearly took 800 lives, but initially it was very confined to parts of Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, It did eventually cross geographical constraints, and that segues right into pandemic. So a pandemic is something that might have started out as an epidemic, but spread across multiple countries, continents, and eventually is prominent worldwide. And a great example is HIV AIDS. Mm -hmm. Um, That is extremely destructive. So now that we have terminology, uh, I guess we're going to delve into some famous outbreaks through history that would probably jog your memory in terms of why this crazy pandemic scenario that seems crazy now but has a lot of historical precedents and is not really far-fetched. So I guess also, we'll start with you. No, so a lot of this stuff has already happened in the past. And as you mentioned, this is going to jog your memories because, you know, everyone knows of the infamous Black Plague and the Black Death, right? And this is something that happened during the Middle Ages. uh, It's 
uh, I usually state it to have occurred between 1347 through 1351. And what happened here was just, they think this may have originated in, in Central Asia. And because of the amount of traveling between Europe and Asia and parts of Northern Africa, there was a lot of chances for rats infected with these, with these fleas that themselves were infected with a bacterium known as Yersinia pestis, was, uh, were now being able to travel amongst these different uh, regions. So multiple routes yeah, of Yeah, just multiple routes of transmission. And unfortunately what this went on to do was that uh, 75 to 200 million people wow. in Eurasia were affected by this, and wow. 30 to 60 percent of Europe's population at the time was killed. This is the entire oh. yeah, population is, of what is modern day continental Yeah, this Europe. is a huge, and it had huge ramifications right. also throughout the history because a lot of the outcome of this actually led on to a lot of the the, the Renaissance and everything else that sort of happened, right. uh, and afterwards in Europe, all of these changes that occurred and the greater attention to to detail, if you will. Mm -hmm. European history was heavily influenced by mm -hmm. by the effect of the Black Plague. And interestingly enough, it was also weaponized. Uh, in the Mongolian warriors of the Golden Horde hmm. in 1346 were, were attacking a city, the city of Kaffa. And the city of Kaffa is in the modern day region of Crimea. And what they did was, they, the Mongolian Horde that was under siege had attacked, uh, was attacking the city of Kaffa. And what they had done was just that uh, they themselves had been exposed to symptoms of the Black Plague, and so their soldiers were dying, and they were demoralized. And at this point, they decided, you know what, let's grab these infected bodies, put it on a catapult, and toss it over the wall into mm -hmm. the city. Mm -hmm. wow. And once they did that, not only did it demoralize the, the inhabitants of Kaffa from seeing dead bodies flung I at mean, them, they killed, but they it killed went them. on right. to like, weaken their immune system and kill them, right. and the Mongolians were able to go on and, and basically right. take over the city. And I guess a similar yeah. method of warfare was also used by, um, by essentially to wipe out Native Americans yeah. and indigenous peoples. Um, as a form of warfare by like colonizers, I guess. Yes, and actually, uh, this this happened during the Pontiac's Rebellion, and there's actually a British captain who, in 1764, uh, during a parley with the Native American tribe of the Delawares, they during this parley, which is otherwise a ceasefire, during this uh, interaction, he specifically used two blankets and a handkerchief to that had been exposed to smallpox and provided them to the Delawares and as a sort of gift. Mm -hmm. And we know that th this was done on purpose because they mentioned in their letters, we hope to come to pass on smallpox to the Native American tribes and hope and run them down. And ridiculously enough, they even sent in an invoice to the British Army to pay back for the two blankets and handkerchief that, that were lost. That's terrible. And, yeah, and they actually got it paid back. <laughs> okay, so. so. <laughs> moving on to more recent examples that are not so that was devastating depressing, <clears throat> or yeah. depressing. Um, we first, um, as Aisha mentioned, we have SARS in 2003. Um, it was eight over 8,000 people got infected, more than 750 died, and it spread to more than two dozen countries, including the United States. Although in the U.S., only eight had, we only had eight reported patients, and the epidemic was mainly localized to southern China. In 2009, we had one of the biggest um, pandemics we have seen in history, which is the H1N1 influenza A, um, where there was more than 60.8 million cases. Was this avian or swine? This was swine flu. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I know there was H5N1 and H1N1, and yeah. I mean, we'll talk about why, but yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, so there were 60.8 million cases in the U.S. alone that resulted in over 270,000 hospitalizations and over 12,000 deaths. Wow. Now, globally, there isn't an accurate So estimates. this was U.S. alone? Yes. Okay. 
Now, there isn't an accurate global um, measurement out there um, just because different factors can cause um, influenza like symptoms and death. But people estimate over 200,000 deaths worldwide, mm -hmm. maybe even for up to 400,000. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, so that's half a million people. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, not as devastating as something historically, like mm -hmm. the Spanish flu or the Black Plague, yeah. that's also just talked about, but still considerable, considerable damage. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I guess now we kind of delve into, you know, people kind of think infectious diseases are a thing of the past. And, for example, in the developed world, the developed world, the Western world, or however you want to call it, cardiovascular diseases are the prominent cause of death, so we forget I guess, personally, um, why infectious diseases have the burden that they have. Um, so really the question is why the things, the scale of the Spanish flu or black plague don't happen anymore. The question entirely is inaccurate, mainly because infectious diseases are still devastating for the developing world. In high-income countries, you know, cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's are the most common causes of death. But in developing countries, infectious diseases are still the most common cause of death. Mm -hmm. um, so these are countries with limited access to basic hygiene, sanitation, medical resources. I mean, for example, you know, tuberculosis alone killed 1.7 million people worldwide in 2016. But the heaviest burden is felt by developing countries, and you have close to 1 million people dying from HIV AIDS in 2017. So the issue very much remains. So I guess why don't we talk about it, or why don't we focus it as much in our research and in funding. Um, and I guess the reality is because infectious diseases are often overlooked because they have a significant impact that's divided across racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic lines. Mm -hmm. And it really does boil down to whose lives matter, right? And I guess there's a multiple number of reasons why they're not dominant in the developed world. I mean, to simply say significant medical advancements, anti mm -hmm. antibiotics, antimicrobials anti in general, mm -hmm. uh, but also basic improvements in public sanitation and yeah. hygiene. And all things that impoverished countries, primarily recovering from colonialism, um, are struggling with. And you know, I have to keep in mind history. Most gain independence and liberation um, from you know their colonial empires only in the mid to late 1900s, yeah. which is just a few decades ago. 1970s. Right, like in yeah. our parents' lifetime, yeah. you know, which is crazy. So yeah. these developing countries are still working towards building a basic infrastructure and implementing basic public health measures because they're just recovering from such a loss of resources and devastation from colonialism. So even access to existing medical innovations like antibiotics and vaccines can be very, very difficult. And really, in terms of funding, I think we experience this as scientists, that we kind of struggle sometimes to mm -hmm. get funding yeah. for infectious diseases and microbiology because mm -hmm. so much funding in at least the West, in terms of America or Europe, goes to cardiovascular diseases, cancer. Mm -hmm. And really, it's not because the death toll isn't high worldwide. It really, really is. But that's just where the money lies, right? Yeah. And I mean, there are efforts like the Gates Foundation and other you know, public health resources, like for example, the World Health Organization that do give grants to address unmet needs. But really, I mean, I don't know what y'all's personal experiences are in terms of funding, but it's a problem. Yeah, it's yes. just not helping us stay ahead of the curve. And that seems to always be the problem when it comes to these sort of pandemics, these infections that sort of hit you. It's mm -hmm. these things happen all of a so sudden. Fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and before we can, and we never stay ahead of the curve. And so right. that's what really, that's what really, uh, I guess, money going into research, that's where it really comes in. Right. We can start learning more about these things and get mm -hmm. an idea of what factors influence their epidemic or pandemic success. Right. And ultimately, we'd be able to sort of predict these things taking place uh, but as you said you know like there there are efforts to sort of help us with that providing funding towards these unmet needs but at the same time 
it's unfortunately it's just it hasn't been enough. Right. I think it really has to do more with public awareness. That's, if the public, I think, really important. Exactly. Yeah. Like, if the public demands more research and more attention, then the government funding organizations will respond. respond to yes. that. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. not like infectious diseases are not getting me- immediate press, because we... It does. Because mm-hmm. yeah, it does, yeah. It, we've seen, like, superbugs that cannot be killed by any known antibiotic right. get on the news. So people right. know about these things. Right. It, and ha- eventually it gains traction. Exactly. But, I mean, I th- well, so Alex just talked about SARS, for example, and I think he mentioned an important statistic, which is, like, close to 800 people died, but, you know, eight reported patients died in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's really when you hear about things, for example. Exactly. So, I mean, if you go, a really good example is Ebola, which is a virus, it's deadly, has killed over 12,000 people in West Africa in under four years, which makes it a big problem. But really, people had not heard about it for the exactly. longest time. I mean, it was devastating, but really it only gained traction, I believe, in 2014 when mm-hmm. Western healthcare workers from England and Spain contracted it after traveling to West Africa, which meant that it was yeah. no longer necessarily an epidemic. And that's when, and it was no longer confined to countries like Liberia, Sierra Leone, Nigeria, etc., which is why people started caring because mm-hmm. it was no longer confined mm-hmm. to West Africa, which I think is really concerning. And after that, it was kind of like the ball got rolling and the US and the UK started setting up treatment facilities to try to contain the spread. But really people paid attention mm-hmm. after one or two people not from West Africa got infected, I guess, which is a, a consistent problem. Um, and a lot of times when you have a lot of epidemics that are confined to these countries, impoverished countries, people don't even hear about it. Like, for example, there was a huge measles outbreak in in the Congo that killed 5,000 people, a cholera outbreak in Hispaniola, which is a Caribbean island, that killed 10,000. In Zimbabwe in 2009, cholera also killed 5,000. I had not heard of any of these. Exactly. And I'm an infectious disease scientist, Mm -hmm. which just shows the certain, like, severe lack of media coverage, I guess, that goes into it. And the disproportionate, and really it's because there's such a disproportionate mm-hmm. impact of infectious diseases. Exactly. And the thing is that things like Ebola, cholera, and these are a small, are very few examples of a wide variety of diseases that affect my, um, developed, uh, um, developing countries. There are yeah. so many tropical diseases that we don't know about or don't, or not, that are not studied that affect people in these countries every day. And the people are, um, we're just starting to understand these diseases and we need to do more to learn about them. All right, so now we'll transition over to our next exciting segment. Okay, so our next segment is going to be pretty cool. So what we're trying to do is kind of cover microbiology in general. So each of us is going to be assigned a type of pathogen. Um, So as we know, microbial pathogens can be divided into bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungi. And what we're gonna do is vouch for whether we think they are primed to be culprits in the next big pandemic. And we're going to go through clear categories or characteristics of a pathogen, any pathogen, that will make it ideal for a widespread outbreak. And um, a lot of this uh, categories I've actually gotten from a study by Johns Hopkins University that is actually called Characteristics of Microorganisms Most Likely to Cause a Global Pandemic, which is really helpful. So we have good uh, sources of info. And I guess we'll start with the first category. So I'm doing viruses. Um, So the first category is in order to be a good pathogen that can kill a lot of people, it just has to be easily transmissible. So transmission. Um, So 
so viruses are, you know, a unique microbe primarily because they rely on a living host to be able to replicate and be infectious. Uh, they can persist outside a host, but they can't make copies of them themselves or carry out any cellular process. Now, for a virus to be easily transmissible, it has to be, you know, very contagious, spread really fast, and um, with limited contact. So most studies on viruses really show that the best mode of transmission is respiratory, uh, which already many viruses use, like SARS, uh, coronavirus, or the influenza virus. Ideally, multiple modes of transmission are ideal. So if you can have something that aerosolizes, also persists on multiple mm -hmm. surfaces, also has multiple vectors of transmission, like you know, like you said, rodents yeah. and fleas and birds and pigs, that's ideal. Um, so for example, uh, in the developed world where we are deeply interconnected and have like internal air circulating systems, respiratory would be the most successful, but maybe in the developing world, fecal oral because of lack yes. of hygiene. So it really depends on the setting also. Um, but ideally, the idea is to have bugs persist in the environment for as long as possible. And in-person contact spread would be easiest. And I guess just having things aerosolize and be present mm -hmm. in the environment yeah. so we can breathe it in. Exactly. So I guess next, Alex. So I'm working, I'm going to vouch for bacteria here. Um, <clears throat> the interesting thing about bacteria is that there's so many ways it can be trans, um, it can be transmitted across populations or even across species. And so I'm going to divide it to mainly three parts, foodborne, waterborne, and airborne. So, and all of them, all, all of these categories are, have bad bacteria that can kill you. Um, there's foodborne bacteria like C. botulinum that has a deadly bot the Botox toxin and you can ingest food that has been contaminated with this bacteria and it will cause a, a fatal in infection. There's also waterborne diseases like the famous cholera or salmonella mm -hmm. and there's also airborne infections that can be caused by tuberculosis mm -hmm. and um, streptococcus pneumoniae that causes pneumonia or meningitis bacteria. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to say what the next <laughs> what, pan... What your favorite, I guess, is, mode of transmission-wise? Yeah. Yes. Just because all these bacteria are really famous for being bad and just can cause very dangerous infections. But I guess for the purposes of causing a pandemic, mm -hmm. airborne bacteria will cause the right. most um, threats just because how easy it easier is. Easier mode of transmission, yeah. Just because that means close-to-close -close human contact mm -hmm. will be able to cause uh, an infection. Um, like tuberculosis is one of the um, one of the most um, dangerous bacteria out there that can be transmitted by airborne uh, transmission. Yeah. Okay. And so, so I mean, I'm looking at both uh, parasites and fungi. And in terms of like fungi, for example, as one might imagine, they depend a lot on just their ability to sort of like uh, uh, produce spores. And mm. so we're talking about airborne over here. And while at the same time there are some fungi that are capable of um, that one could say will uh, waterborne if mm -hmm. in quote unquote just in the sense because they will release spores into the water and so forth, they're really not that successful in the water. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, the thing about fungi is that as you mentioned before, like that direct human contact does come into play whenever you get these spores sort of on the skin or anything like that, or you might inhale them. Uh, and this influences a lot highly dead, highly populated regions such as devel in developing countries mm -hmm. and so fungi can be successful depending uh, depending on the geography depending on where they're at mm -hmm. and that's what we've seen with uh, with some of the fungi right now uh, one particularly known as Batrachochytrium dendrobatitis for example mm -hmm. it's just obliterating amphibian populations up to the, about 30% of 
of amphibian populations have either gone through massive decline or but restricted extinct. to amphibian populations. Yeah, okay, not a zone, no zoonosis. Yeah. yeah, okay. So amphibians. So we're talking about just like frogs <laughs> right, uh, right. and then salamanders and whatnot. And this is and so it just shows sort of their effectiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, parasites, on the other hand, we're talking about something that has multiple life cycles over here. And so what they can do is their their mode of transmission is pretty tricky. They can be one life cycle that's pretty good enough for it right. to go for for it to go inside of a fly, mm. uh, and then within the fly they enter another life cycle and then the fly can then be sub uh, uh can then go and infect a human host mm -hmm. and what which is something we see with the african sleeping sickness mm. and things like that uh it's called the tsetse fly yeah the right? tsetse fly yeah the tsetse <laughs> we fly we all heard of like and, the sleeping sickness and there's also some other parasites that actually use for example the using the sand fly mm. and this one's actually really bad too because the sand fly unfortunately is able to get past a lot of the mosquito nets it's not typically inhibited by that mm. so modal transmission wise i would say that Parasites, are, yeah, parasites yeah. that can use these these vectors, these right. sort of uh, carriers, because right. uh, they can go. They can. It's not just with flies. I mean, they can be within. Right. Most animals. famously, malaria. Yeah, I well, guess with mosquitoes. Exactly, and so I think parasites, in terms of transmission, just because we're talking about developing countries, highly populated, and just economy is uh, more mm -hmm. often than not on the down, and so mm -hmm. just very difficult situation. I would say that parasites are probably uh, more so than fungi are going yeah. to be mm -hmm. a bigger factor really in the transmission, yeah. Right. If I may point out something, I think it is important to note that defending bacteria here, that like, mm -hmm. while viruses and parasites typically live on a host, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh -huh. viruses are not alive, they have to be on a host. Right. Um, bacteria are everywhere, and they're right. alive, yes. and they're everywhere. Right, they we, do have that advantage. Exactly, yeah. they're in your water supply, they're on your hands right, right. now, they're in right. your body, they're on your desk, they're everywhere, right. and we can't <laughs> get rid of them. And I mean, that's what makes cholera, for example, yeah. so dangerous, because if you have one water supply going through an entire exactly. town, mm -hmm. how do you possibly clear that up, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why so many people die, because bacteria are unique in that they can persist on things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and don't need necessarily vectors like malaria needs you know mosquitoes mm -hmm. or yeah. or they can you know for example they can persist on rodents and fleas mm -hmm. but you know just it's they're unique in that way like viruses yeah. not necessarily persisting on hard surfaces or anything um so i think that's pretty unique um okay so the next category is um i guess transmiss uh, transmission in terms of how uh like sleek it is or um so we call it like incubation period so for example most pathogens can persist in a host for a really long time without causing any symptoms which can be fairly dangerous so for a virus for example hiv can persist without causing any issues for anything between one to ten years mm -hmm. which is terrifying because in that time they are still you know people are still contagious um, now, if they can be transmitted to that during that time frame, there is no warning, no symptoms, so there, there are no efforts to treat this person or even quarantine or contain it. Um, so Ebola virus, for example, um, is the other end where uh, the incubation time isn't as long, but it doesn't shed, which means that it's not transmissible the mm -hmm. time that it's in that incubation period. But polio virus, for example, even though it can be, you know, the incubation period is shorter, it's dormant up to 20 days. In that time, though, when they're not, the, the host itself that's been infected is not experiencing any symptoms, they are still actively shedding and infecting other people, mm -hmm. which I think can be... And I think of, when we talk about the movies, that's going to be an important thing, but a very important key thing to be successful as a pathogen is that you need to be able to infect for long enough where you are almost hidden and in camouflage to be able to transmit fast, mm -hmm. I guess. Yeah. So, I think that is a very interesting topic for bacteria, too, just because... Bacteria are everywhere, and they are not always pathogenic. Mm -hmm. For example, we have 
potentially pathogenic bacteria already living inside us mm. in every single human mm. um, for, for and depending on the situation these bacteria can become pathogenic in the future so we in a sense kind of have a like when you're immunocompromised exactly yeah. right. you have kind of a ticking time bomb inside for example like we, there's a bacteria called Clostridium difficile, mm -hmm. um, or C. diff, as people call it, that are in our intestines. <clears throat> and if we take antibiotics, that removes um, all the non-resistant um, bacteria out of our system, then C. diff can take over because it is drug resistant. Mm -hmm. And then we will have a, a severe C. diff infection. Mm -hmm. So depending on the circumstance, even non-pathogenic bacteria that we call commensal bacteria in our gut or in our or in a microbiota can become pathogenic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and along those lines, actually, you end up finding a couple of fungi like uh, that do a similar thing. Similar, mm -hmm. like for example, the Canada species, mm -hmm. which they uh, they are typically a, a sort of what you could call a good member of our normal microbiome uh, within our bodies. But at the same time, in situations similar to what, as you mentioned, like whether it be uh, treatment that might get that might I guess open up more space for. Uh, for Canada to, I guess, just uh, spread out, just to colonize mm -hmm. even more, because now, let's say you're immunocompromised, you've lost a good amount of other bacteria, well, Canada would be able to now go on and over-colonize, mm -hmm. and what this does is, it can lead to, obviously, a lot of the, one of the biggest problems in hospitals uh, is uh, bloodstream infections due mm -hmm. to uh, candidiasis, mm -hmm. and so that... Well, I guess, do you think yeah. that's good for a pandemic, though? Well, that, well the, I guess just uh, fungi and parasites are really... When it comes to, I guess, host persistence, parasites are very are, are pretty quick. Okay. Uh, one of the things about them is that, one, they're pretty good at camouflage. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you notice, uh, you notice a, a certain parasites, it's already too late. Mm -hmm. They've already, like, for example, the brain-eating amoeba, mm -hmm. by the time you notice the, those symptoms, it's already chewing, literally right. chewing you through your brain. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the, the brain-eating amoeba, otherwise known as Negleria fowleri. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about the African sleeping sickness with the, with, with the parasite um, Trypanosoma brucei, mm -hmm. and it's usually by the time you, it's already, by, by the time you show symptoms, it's already in your central nervous system. And so these guys actually take a, a couple of days to sort of go in, do their job, and get out. Mm -hmm. And so parasites are pretty quick in their actions. Uh, fungi, on the other hand, are probably the only ones, as I mentioned, with Canada, that technically can sort of persist, but then again, other right. types of fungi can also Transmission just Transmission and infect. everything is yeah. just yeah, They can just infect in a matter of days, they will right. take you out. So, yeah, so, yeah, so I guess... Fungi, they vary. Yeah, I guess fungi aren't that bad in terms of, at least the commensals, mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of spreading rapidly and killing people. I guess it's very host-dependent and, mm -hmm. you know, yes, very exactly. much a naive immunocompromised hosts. Mm -hmm. um, so the next thing is a matter of big debate, I guess. So virulence, pathogenicity, how fast can it kill? Which is a matter of big debate because yeah. do you ideally want something that can kill really fast, but mm -hmm. then that means it's not going to spread that fast. Um, so I guess the, the ideal is to have something that has a fairly high fatality rate, but also a really long incubation time. So that would allow it to be persistent in a host for a really long time, allow for a lot of people to get it, mm -hmm. and a lot of people to die, which is the ideal. If yes. something just infects you and kills you really fast, then you're not gonna spread that. Um, and it's really easy to quarantine people that have active sy symptoms that develop really fast, you know what's going on, quarantine, containment. 
Um, so that's really not a good pathogen in terms of pandemics, I guess. I mean, this is terrible for us to talk about, but yeah, and we're yeah. talking about successful pathogens, right? Right, right. Yeah, right, we're right. talking about successful. In right, yeah, successful what in the sense. What would lead to their more to the to, to I guess the success as a pandemic factor? Or right. This yeah. is very pandemic, yeah. right? So there are a lot of pathogens that have you know up to like a hundred percent fatality rate. Yeah. yeah. But if just one person is dying, we're not talking about on a scale of a pandemic, yeah. I guess. So ideally, something with a high high mortality rate, but the time to death, I've realized, mm -hmm. is what really matters. And this might be the same for for all pathogens, mm -hmm. regardless of what they are. But I mean, ideally, if you're gonna be some, if you're gonna kill too fast, you're just gonna burn out in a small geographical region. Yeah. You're not really gonna have time to have people transmit over continents and over geographical borders, I guess. Which is why HIV is such an ideal virus, because I mean, years, people, years, and travel, and exactly, it, and, you know, and this is why people don't even realize they have they have onset of symptoms for so long, and they've been transmitting it. Um, so I guess, and it has a high case fatality rate. So people do die when they have HIV AIDS, right? So, mm -hmm. so it is something that kills, but doesn't kill fast enough. So it has time to spread, I guess. So do y'all have anything to add to that? I guess no, I from mean, a perspective, I guess that's pretty yeah, I general. Guess, I mean, yeah. yeah, I guess, yeah, that, that all those apply. And I guess you also have to factor in just, I guess, um, just a geographical dependence in the sense that if we're talking about very like something in a very highly populated area mm. even if you do kill fast well it's highly populated so more than likely mm. if one of your symptoms that you're inducing is vomiting or whatnot well yeah you're still likely to infect others because you're in highly populated regions right. maybe by bodies of water that a lot of people use and so forth right. i guess if, that would yeah, be a really devastating like to, epidemic yeah those yeah. are more things that like that might be more isolated but technically in the sense of success you're very successful as so an yeah as an as a more of an epidemic okay or like one of the more important factors i think is the movement in and out of that geographic region exactly. like <clears throat> even if the incubation period is like two days uh, people keep moving in and out right. of that region then you, you just can't track it anymore it just right. spreads immediately right. like patient zero to like how does yeah. it exactly yeah. that can be people moving that can be um Products animals? moving, yeah. animals moving, exactly. food moving, water moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess like the, uh, just to, to your point, like tourist attraction sites. I mean, a lot of the developed countries that we talk about being whatnot. I mean, they're also very beautiful countries, mm -hmm. yes. and they are tourist attractions. Mm -hmm. That's one of the bigger uh, sort of. Uh, I guess even like when you, you mentioned Clostridium difficile, mm -hmm. well, C. diff, that was traveler's diarrhea is the name right. that it's associated with, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so that's literally because it's in very attractive sites in the sense of like a tourist des destinations and people will go and even if it only takes two days for symptoms to show, well, if you're just passing by on a layover or whatnot, that's long enough for you to bring it back. Right. So the next big category is treatment. It has to be something that is really hard to treat and both preventative and curative, right? So mm -hmm. preventative like vaccines, curative like antimicrobials. So I guess with viruses, RNA viruses are ideal based on like all of the research that has been done, primarily because they have a really high genetic mutation rate, mm -hmm. allowing them to evolve really fast, which always keeps them ahead of the curve in terms of drugs and vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I mean, something as simple as the flu does this all the time, right? So when we develop a vaccine for the flu, we basically have to predict which types which strains of the flu are circulating around the world, and then we have a particular vaccine that immunizes people against those particular strains. But the moment you have a particular strain that just changes and mutates really fast and is no longer in that coverage of the vaccine, it doesn't matter, right? So, yeah. and, and that's, that's something- exactly what happened with H1N1, right? Right, yeah. right, right. And exactly, with viruses, I think that's really common because vaccines immunize against specific proteins that are on the surfaces of these viruses. And if viruses can mutate really fast and change those mm -hmm. proteins, they are no longer recognizable you know, by exactly so by the, the yeah antibodies no longer recognize them which is mm -hmm. like how vaccines are made and with viruses 
there are a lot less antivirals than there are in terms of like for example antibiotics mm -hmm. for bacteria yeah. so that automatically means that the you know your your armory that you're starting off with is, is very small so if something develops resistance then you don't really have anything to go to so I guess with bacteria that's also a huge problem now in terms of resistance yes so we have um, drugs called antibiotics that we prescribe to patients who have bacterial infections. The issue is resistance that many bacteria species, and especially the ones that can be pathogenic, are now resistant. And the CDC keeps a list of these bacteria, and to name a few, MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, or Pseudomonas aeruginosa, or um, Vancomycin-resistant um, Enterobacter. Yes. Enterococci. Enterococci. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I only know that because I work on them. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say something about Enterobacter later. Um, yeah. But yeah, they have this. They, we already have this list of probably ten to twenty um, bacteria that are already resistant and are dangerous. And I mentioned this earlier, but in September 2016, a woman died of a carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae. Bacteraceae. <laughs> it's actually pronounced Bacteraceae. Yeah, Enter Bacteraceae. It's not a C A. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah it's C. Yeah, really? Uh -huh. yeah. yeah. C. C is not C A. Yeah, the, yeah, the A E won't isn't pronounced like yeah. It wouldn't be C A. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> it's spelled that way though, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. But it's some Latin thing. It's yeah. <laughs> some Latin. Yeah. Thing. Those guys. But yeah. Um, <laughs> Those guys. And that bacteria was already resistant to most, but now it was resistant to all available antibiotics. So that was... Was this here, like the U.S.? or something? It was in the United yeah. States. And the issue with carbapenem-resistant Enterobacteraceae is that it, among all those bacteria out there, it is the most likely to be pan-resistant, resistant to all antibiotics. So that is really a red flag there. But also the issue is that a lot of the last resort or, mo or most effective drugs out there such as vancomycin for staph or carbapenem for enterobacteraceae are becoming resistant. Right. Uh, so that is a huge issue. And some, I, I, I talked to my friends about it and then some people just ask why I can just increase the dosage or just start mixing everything together, <laughs> yeah, just yeah, giving well, it to patients. It doesn't work. <laughs> An issue that doesn't work is, is if you increase the dosage, dosage enough, it may kill the bacteria, but that will also kill you too. Because yeah. antibiotics are toxic molecules and you will cause kidney failure or liver failure if you if you put too much into a patient and at that point the antibiotics kills you faster than the bacteria mm -hmm. and you don't want that mm -hmm. so yeah taking into account there are more cells in your body even when you're sick there are more cells in your body than just what's attacking you exactly, they're also your yeah. own cells and right. they are also oh, yeah. you're cell, also you subjecting them, them right. to to harm right? right and so and i will actually say that when it comes to treatment options i think parasites and fungi take this one and the reason why, the reason why they, they will be very successful is because we know very little, especially I for agree, parasites. Yeah, we know parasites, so, yeah, we like know almost nothing. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. because, uh, and you you brought this problems up before, Aisha, where, uh, where, where it's been just a lack of research, research. into these things. So yeah. we don't, and because it's so isolated sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it's so specific to certain Geographically, regions yeah. that it's just not... Uh, that it's just I not agree. studied. So we know nothing, almost nothing about mm -hmm. a lot of really deadly parasites with, with greater than 95%, almost 100% mortality. Yep. And we know absolutely nothing of how they work. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and for fungi, the ones that we are very familiar with, we also see that, uh, that they're also resistant to a lot of antifungal compounds. And now that's a really big issue as well, just because, well, 
similar to bacteria, which are now displaying a lot of antibiotic resistance, we got even of the few fungi that we are very well aware of, they're also quite resistant to antifungal mm -hmm. compounds. And so I would say when it comes to treatment options, parasites and fungi would definitely be the take most the, successful the the <laughs> amongst the category because of a lack of knowledge and how they really work. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have two categories left and then we'll go into movies. So really quickly, host response. I mean, I think this is very general, but really the host shouldn't have the ability to fight it off or immune system going to overdrive, yes. which yes. both can kill it. So not mm -hmm. enough, way too much. Yeah. Yes. So I guess when you say not enough, you mean camouflage, right? Like basically... Well, it's just not able to mount a response, mm -hmm. right? Oh, okay. Not able to clear the infection. Yes. Just not good enough, not able to develop any kind of response, whether it is, you know, basic host defense systems, mm -hmm. innate immunity or adaptive immunity. Yeah. Or mm -hmm. too much cytokine storm, right? Yeah. yeah. You just go into overdrive shock, septic shock. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really it in terms of host. And I think the other thing is, y'all mentioned this, it should be able to infect people that are not immunocompromised also. Yes. Yeah. And I guess when you say, when you, when you mention overdrive, just to, to further clarify, we're not just talking about the, the cytokine storm or this immune cell sort of storm. It's not just bad because you're overworking your body. Mm -hmm. It's also bad because you're attacking in this, yourself. yeah, you're attacking yourself. Mm -hmm. You have way too many guys out there just sort of trying right. to fight off this pathogen. And at some point, they just start attacking everything because right. everything starts being right. recognized as, as, a, as, an, as a foreign as a agent. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's when those sort of like overdrives of the immune cells really become, a, become right. an issue. Too much, too little. Yeah. yeah. And I think the last one that we have is, is a, the cooler category, which is climate change. Um, mm -hmm. So this is something that we, us three, came up with, not mm -hmm. necessarily something that's been researched, but I think is very cool, mm -hmm. primarily because we're in this era where, you know, we are, we are moving towards a trend where we have such a stagnant shift in climate change where, you know, temperatures are increasing, things mm -hmm. are getting hotter, and what that means is previous areas that used to be geographically isolated are no longer geographically mm -hmm. isolated. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about, for example, the polar ice caps that are melting, and how does that contribute maybe to pathogen spread and I mean I guess the simplest thing is things pathogens that we've never ever been exposed to or have no idea mm -hmm. that exist mm -hmm. that are buried under the tundra mm -hmm. are like viruses you know a lot of times yeah. that can persist are now you know now the things are polarized caps are melting and people actually have contact with water and oceans mm -hmm. that are coming from those glaciers and polarized caps that we could possibly be exposed to those things and, oh. oh it's also the temperature rising right exactly. because mm -hmm. yeah. we see uh, with the, with the global temperature rising areas that w would have never been affected by pathogens because they're too cold mm -hmm. are now being affected by it. for example like Zika virus is is rising is coming up the continent to the United States because it is getting warmer. Yes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're basically now certain yeah certain areas. So that, they're moving. Yeah. They're like exactly. because something so, is like an ideal niche, and then something exactly. else is becoming an ideal exactly. niche. Exactly. Yeah. We're basically creating this micro environment before something was secluded to mm -hmm. uh, tropical rainforests or something like that. But then as areas mm -hmm. start as hum higher humidity, higher temperature, all these other factors are now appearing in areas of say northern Europe or something mm -hmm. like that. And all of a sudden, these same environments are becoming just the perfect spot for mm -hmm. for something that was further, much further south in the past. And so, right. and so that's sort of the the difficulty for the for the issue of this, where we think we're safe because a lot of these things are geographically isolated. But with global warming, you do have that problem of global warming is essentially creating a, a increasing expanding the size 
of the geographically isolated niches and mm-hmm. that's the that's sort of the danger that that comes especially about. i guess with neglected tropical diseases yeah right? and that's that, that really is the issue because fungi do very well in high humidity high temperature environments and, and parasites thing, yeah <laughs> parasites as well and as i mentioned earlier like you know we're talking about something that we know very little mm-hmm. about and so i guess at the end of the day as this sort of stuff becoming more of a problem hopefully more research will go into these guys to potentially find out more about them right but the as connection between infectious diseases yeah, and climate change yeah. exactly there's a very intricate connection with it and there's a, and I would suggest to anyone listen to really go out and just look into there's been some very good studies on just sort of uh, previously uh, diseases now appearing in Europe or mm. North America and whatnot that mm. were previously never a factor right and I mean to end it off I guess that is really what we could advocate for that you know something that would cause the next big pandemic doesn't necessarily have to be something that came out of the blue mm-hmm. it could be something that people are no longer used to so for yeah. example mm-hmm. something as small as smallpox Right. So something that no one is vaccinated for anymore, especially in the developing the developed world and something that is kills fast, transmits fast. I mean, if that could just be out there, you know, that's scary. Something like malaria, Mm -hmm. especially Uh malaria in the developed world. People would not know how to deal with that. You know, nobody understands, you know, how to contain things like that. And if something like that in terms of climate change shifted here, Mm -hmm. I think that would be truly devastating. devastating. Yeah. Um, so now we're, we'll move on, I guess, to the most exciting segment. Movies. Movies. Yeah. Okay, so Our how we'll culture. go about this, I guess. Each of us are going to take five minutes. Um, I think a little less than five minutes. We were in 40 minutes, so hopefully each of us can take five minutes, no more, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. we'll to talk try. about, um, quickly give a summary of what happened, and then talk about what <coughs> you thought was scientifically accurate and what wasn't. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who wants to go first? I guess, uh, let's say, my movie's there first is the, I guess was made in 2003. Yeah, let's and, go like in order. Yeah, of we can go oh, chronologically. Sure. Yeah, so just because you can also see how uh, scientific accuracy got better over time. That's well, <laughs> well, so relatively depends, speaking. Right. Yeah. Okay, so okay, we'll see how ridiculous. Oh, how ridiculous. I guess how interesting the premise of my movie is. So mm-hmm. I had 28 days later. Mm-hmm. Now this is a cult movie. I love it. I'm a big fan of, of zombie movies. Oh, also spoilers. If you have not watched 28 Days Later, Contagion, yeah. or World War Z, you probably should stop right now. And- <laughs> Just trust that we're gonna have a really cool ending. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's also worth it. Just go rewatch it. But so I rewatched uh, Twenty Eight Days Later. Of course, you know the first time I watched it, I was always I was always impressed by it. And the second time watching it now as a scientist, I'm just kind of like, oh my god, this is ridiculous. But it's still a fun movie. Anyway, so what happens is you have this uh, this scientist in Cambridge. They were trying to understand uh, sort of popular uh, pop anger so they're trying to understand how to better sort of do a population control if you will mm-hmm. and they were using primates uh mon- monkeys or chimps i guess uh they're using primates to uh, as study subjects right mm-hmm. and they're basically trying to understand the effects of rage mm-hmm. basically uh they, they they the idea is they get these uh these primates in in a very in a state of very high high rage if mm-hmm. you will mm-hmm. and then they look into methods of sort of uh acquiescing or just like sort of calming them down and whatever right okay. yeah and so this is that that's basically what they that's wanted the to study the premise okay. was just they were trying to to learn how to better inhibit or lessen the impact of of anger protests and whatnot you know like and so the in the beginning of the movie you see this primate just with all these like electrodes attached and it's looking and it's watching these videos of protests and people throwing Molotov cocktails ever just pretty much everyone's really angry <laughs> mm-hmm. and what happens is these uh, pro these uh, protesters uh, these uh, activists who are against uh, the the usage of animals as test subjects they uh, sneak into the facility at Cambridge and what they do they end up 
um, they end up actually trying to release some of these primates in, in an effort to help them or save them, if you will. Okay, as, as like Planet of the Apes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But unfortunately, uh, you know, one of the scientists that happened to be there is, oh no, they're contagious. So what, what do they have? A virus? So, well, the idea is that somehow they don't, this is how ridiculous the premise is. The, the scientist know. just yells out, this is the first two minutes gives the entire scientific, quote-unquote, accuracy of the movie. Uh-huh. It's never referenced again. The scientist just claims that they infected them with a virus uh-huh. that promotes rage. Okay, they yeah, says, very similar yeah, to the Planet of the And just say, we infected them, yeah. They just say, we infected them with rage, one bite and oh, or it was saliva and the rage virus. Yeah, the okay. rage virus. Exactly. Now I get the reference because <laughs> yeah, I have to watch twenty exactly. days later. Well, and, okay. and you know, as they open the they open the cage of the primates, the primates runs out, out and, and bites the and bites the person. And now that's the big apocalyptic yeah. event. And right? you know, you got this like in ten seconds they transform into they, they morph into the, and it's just a very so is this a zombie? Yeah, it's movie? a zombie movie. Okay, so basically people get infected with this rage virus and they become like a zombie, like a zombie, right? Yeah, and they bite other people. That's how it transforms. They become a zombie. Yeah. Okay. So it's a and, zombie infectious disease-ish movie. Yeah. Okay. And so cool. I would say that, you know, for a movie in 2003, the okay. scientific accuracy was really just about the fact that they <laughs> used primates as test subjects or something <laughs> okay. at most. But okay. as far as anything regarding, like, uh, a potential virus, no. But it was a fun movie to watch, for, of course. But okay. at the same time, not. There was a lot. There was no science really behind it other than they used the word virus at some point. Okay. <laughs> and even in terms of the movie, like, progressing, they didn't talk much about the science? No, not at all. Okay. They literally just said, oh, we don't know the cure. And at most, what they did was they would capture some of these infected individuals and just study their behavior. They would notice that they might lie dormant when there's no uninfected host that they might go and try to bite. Mm. But they were, you know, they were sensitive to sound. Very basically. similar to like yeah. all zombie movies yeah exactly yeah. so it was very cliche in that sense but you know of course this is 2003 one, right. of, one, one of the ones I was sort of trying to add a little bit more science to it I didn't feel like it did a fantastic enough job but it was That's definitely so cool fun mm-hmm. but yes and so the rage virus is their premise okay so, I think the next Alex, one is yours. Oh, me? Actually, okay, cool. World War Z, 2005. Okay, that's a good, I guess that's a good transition. Oh, wow, yeah. So it is, it is a little is. later, yeah. a little later. Uh, I mean, I personally want to say Contagion is probably the most accurate, so I'm going to give that warning. Mm-hmm. Okay, so World War Z, very similar to what Celso just talked about. Okay, it is essentially a zombie apocalyptic movie, but the zombies are because they are people that have been infected with this crazy virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially, what happens is uh, there is a virus that there is a virus that maybe jumped reservoirs, a zoonosis event, animal to human, and it's something that spreads really fast. When, when a person has it, they become a zombie, they bite other people, so on and so forth. Very similar premise. The microbiology of the movie is truly silly, <laughs> but the epidemiology actually might be more accurate. Yes. Um, so if you do have a newly emerging virus, it can definitely spread really fast because the population has no immunity to it. Mm-hmm. So there, in the movie, there is a clear transmission, right? So bites, which is fine, okay? If we just, for just... Just yeah, suspend disbelief. Okay, uh-huh. um, but the thing that 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 really really bothers me is you know once a person is bit, it takes ten seconds. Yes. Yeah. And Brad Pitt. So Brad Pitt is the is the is the you know star in the movie, and he counts multiple times <laughs> yes. yeah. from one to ten. So literally from the time that a person is is bit uh-huh. till they have a full manifestation of symptoms, and I mean full neurological symptoms, like mm-hmm. they are now a full on zombie. They have no control over their behavior, full-on aggression, and complete neurological deficits, right? 
Which is bull for those, yeah, like, that is just in terms of, we just talk so much about incubation period, which I think is important because in terms of the microbiology, it, there is no way any kind of pathogen, regardless of what kind, could possibly, especially because this is a virus, I guess, in the movie, replicate, hijack the host cell's machinery in your body long enough to make proteins or whatever is necessary yeah. mm-hmm. to actually cause damage in the body for this in this case it has to be something that crosses the blood brain barrier goes yeah. into your brain yeah. and basically changes you know who you are your behavior mm-hmm. right complete like completely impossible for it to have that full manifestation yeah. of pathogenesis so sure viruses have varying incubation times but they are days to years not seconds right it is just crazy and even like, what is the infectious dose that you can even provide to someone if you just bite them? Right. You know, like, right. like, like how right. high of a just, dose of a, I mean, of a animals virus. do it, right? That's yeah. how you get rabies. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. You could definitely pass things by bite. I mean, really, you know? No, like, no, no. I mean, I, I understand that, but I'm saying like, that it would be a ridiculously high infectious dose for, the, for that change to occur in 10, 10 seconds. Yeah. That's not impossible. That would really just unlikely. cause a shock. Not possible. Just, There's no the way. that yeah. it spreads exclusively by biting, right? Yeah. Right. Because Brad Pitt, I know he ingests some blood. No, he got it in his mouth, right? Yeah. That right, that yeah. didn't do it. He said, and that makes doesn't make sense because in terms of transmission, exactly, if it yeah. is some, it's usually something very specific, right? Mm-hmm. Like you just really need that particle or that microbe yeah. in your body. Mm-hmm. And for example, aerosolized, you're breathing it in. Body fluids, right? So yeah. either sexual transmission mm-hmm. or like blood. you know blood, yeah. blood, very common blood, dirty needles, like things like that. You need basically it to be in your body. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't make sense to me how yeah. Brad Pitt had like blood in his mouth and that was fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the fact that you know someone like you need a body which was like yeah. very like sexy yeah. but not yeah. accurate <laughs> yeah. um, and I guess uh, something like Im- I guess important to point out is is there anything that could actually cause a zombie-like symptom mm-hmm. which is so you know people can get meningitis and encephalitis right so pathogens can cross the blood-brain barrier but not that level of like rage and aggression really yeah. not really well documented so i mean rabies for example is something that people associate with where the animal itself that have rabies are very aggressive mm-hmm. so it is possible yeah. in the animal kingdom at least but in terms of people it usually makes people very sleepy and disoriented um not necessarily anything that i can think of in terms of rabies um i mean so you have like cattle and raccoons and other animals that can become very rabid when they have infectious diseases so maybe something like that manifests in people maybe um there is um, a parasite toxoplasmosis gondii which there was a really cool study um it's not a it's not a virus but you know cool study that showed that mice that are infected by this parasite are more aggressive in that they actively start seeking out cats Mm -hmm. and biting them and they have less fear which interesting right not too much too much basis to it in terms of people but some basis in terms of animals um and really in terms of so i i want to say in terms of microbiology bacteria and viruses and other pathogens are very good at using their host to manipulate them to get them to do what they want Mm -hmm. so for example there's been a lot of studies recently published about how bacteria and viruses can use our gut brain neural circuitry to control whether we eat or not eat Um, because one or the other is advantageous for them to persist. So they can literally, a single protein can make you want to eat more or eat less, which I think is a very cool way to show how pathogens can use something, like a single protein, to control such complex neurological circuitry, right? So possible, but in terms of like all-out aggression, I don't think that's really reasonable. So, and the last but not least, the way 
he saves the world. That was amazing. Yeah. Is uh, <laughs> amazing for like, for, yes, from amazing. From a scientific standpoint of like they thought about Right. This. So the, yeah. what really happens, I'm so sorry, spoilers. The way he saves the world is Brad Pitt basically realizes that, you know, the only way, there, have to ha- there has to be a weakness, which is accurate, right? Every yeah, pathogen has, has a weakness. A weakness yeah. But, so what he does is he goes uh, to what, the WHO facility. The WHO. Mm-hmm. Um, in like where? Ireland or uh, yeah, somewhere? Scot- Scotland. 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 Yeah. Um, and he infects himself with a lethal but curable bacteria. Mm-hmm. So basically he is no longer an ideal host for a virus because virus rely on healthy hosts to be able to replicate, transmit, persist. Sexy idea, but really just there's no mechanism by which a host or anyone or anything could detect infection in someone that fast because yes. he literally infects himself mm-hmm. and maybe 30 yeah. seconds later goes head on with the zombie Although, and the zombie avoids him well, yeah, which is a beautiful beautiful a for the visual it uh-huh. was badass yeah. right yeah because he just walks out of the walks out of the facility WHO facility and all of these zombies are running around him yeah. and dodging him because he's not an ideal host mm-hmm. The, the the idea is good in yeah. that viruses, especially because they depend or parasites, do look for healthy hosts, but there is no mechanisms thus far that we think of where they can detect it that fast. Yeah, yes. the detection was definitely odd, and, I, and if I'm not mistaken, I think like uh, I, I think just just to to mention the tip, I think he actually waited, like he infected himself, and I think you you're right that 30 seconds later we see the CFM walking out, but I think he, like he sat down for a while. He, like, oh, he sits maybe down, he did. He's just kind of sitting, bit. just a yeah. sort of waiting until like the zombie. And at one point, he decides, no, screw this. I'm just gonna go I'm and just try. Gonna go out. Yeah, yeah, but symptoms. yeah, not he did not. Exhibit yeah, he didn't symptoms. develop symptoms. He just right. sort of sat for he a just while. Waited. Yeah. He waited for a while, but it doesn't give you an idea of how long it had been that he waited. Right. So you're right. It could have been 30 seconds, right. or it could have been like right. an hour. And also, but either if way, you're a crazy still, zombie, yeah. and I mean, you are something with a crazy like brain infection, like encephalitis, and you have like psychosis. There is no way you're going to yeah. be able to detect that in another healthy human. That's just not possible, yeah. right? So, I mean, it's okay. The movie was fine. It was great. I Sexy it. movie. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I, it was great for me because I was like, that's a microbiologist, yeah. right? <laughs> in that, my that head. Movie was awesome. um, but not super accurate in terms of microbiology. Better in terms of the epidemiology, not really yeah. microbiology. So, Alex, probably more for an accurate, more accurate movie. Yes. So, Less sexy, but more accurate. Yes. Yes. So my movie's Contagion. I forgot. It's either 2011, 2013. It's one of those. Two. Most recent, though. Yeah. Yes, most recent. It was actually a lot to do with how the public or the government responds to an mm. epidemic. So, in brief, we have a virus that's based on bats that mm. has been crossed over to pigs and to humans. Oh, multiple zoonoses. Mm-hmm. Exactly, and then it causes symptoms and death within two to four days. So it is super fast acting. It can be transmitted very easily by simply cu- coming in contact with the person. If you if I hold a cup and then give it to Celso, like he okay. will get infected. It didn't really make <laughs> much sense, like how that would be the case. But like, hmm. apparently, it's transmittable just by simple contact or sneezing and coughing as usual. But beyond that, it really talks about like how we should respond to an epidemic. Mm. So obviously it is a new virus. We do not know how to respond to it. There are no vaccines to it. It just spreads like wildfire because it happens in Hong Kong, London, San Mm. Francisco, all those majorly populated areas. Mm. And the government doesn't know what to do. So it it really tells you like how hard it is to Mm. like deal with this. Mm Because first it tells you like, 
we need to culture the vi- virus in a cell that doesn't and without killing it mm-hmm. so that we can study the virus mm-hmm. and then we need to develop vaccines mm-hmm. and we go through a, a list of mechanisms whether we kill the vac- the virus and give it to a person we attenuate with the virus right. and give it to Different the person types of vaccines, yeah. try antivirals we just go through a list and mm-hmm. most of them don't work mm-hmm. like i think specifically it was the 58th um monkey trial that gave them the actual vaccine and after that the fda had to review it right it's like how many people die exactly all of this is happening and then the issue becomes how you're gonna like distribute it it. and who's gonna get it and how you're gonna make it and like who's gonna pay for it and like the issue is in modern world these are an issue and even though there's things in place it's just so hard exactly and it will really would take years to completely get rid of this and, and coordination exactly yeah. so if something like this does happen it really it's not going to be as it, it really gonna it's going to take a huge toll on humanity and i honestly think we got rather lucky with h1n1 the fact that we could develop a vaccine in a rather timely manner i think mm-hmm. in two the, in 2009 i think people were most people were getting vaccinated mm-hmm. i think that was really fortunate for all of us and yeah fortunate yeah exactly yeah. and fortunate that it, you know it, that we were ahead happen. of the mutation yeah curve, exactly really. we're ahead of the curve in that one and i think also like i mean the red tape that you just mentioned that will influence the time for successful treatment or prevention of something like that mm-hmm. uh i think it's important to also acknowledge that the red tape is necessary to, mm-hmm. to, to a certain extent where for it is, safety. yeah it's for safety it's, but it's just like it's a how fast it. can you move but yeah right? exactly can how we make fast? it more efficient of course we can well i but, think yeah, the, the is summary different. is contagion mm-hmm. is the most realistic in yes. that it yeah. actually looks into real problems mm-hmm. that we are dealing with and why something would be so fatal because of all of these, exactly. these issues we run into and probably that's why apocalyptic movies have these crazy save the day scenarios because at the point usually there are no governments there are like 10 people surviving around the world or there are people like in (laughs) ref like seeking refuge in random parts of the world Uh and and that's it people are just like we if we do find a cure right and that's kind of you know Mm -hmm. that's why brad Pitt infected himself um or with movies like i am legend yeah like you know it's just if you find something you just go for it Mm -hmm. but in the real world scenario when it's actively happening Mm -hmm. and when you have governments and and boundaries and geography and Mm -hmm. all of these constraints and bureaucracy it's hard it is it is really hard to get ahead of the curve which is why i guess it's 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 more sexy to have these apocalyptic movies but not (laughs) realistic exactly Exactly. i mean there'll be some realism to it but you're right i mean who would we really sit through a three-month incubation time if you get bit by a zombie and like watch the movie you just be like okay it's three months later or six months you know like it's it's you're right it's for hollywood purposes mm-hmm. they have to be made in a certain way but this is why podcasts like these are important because mm-hmm. we tend get to sort of separate debunk, re- debunk certainness yeah. but at mm-hmm. the same time also educating people on, on right. where hollywood is right where hollywood is wrong right and nevertheless please once again for your own sake go watch all these three movies yes. these are really right, good right. and entertaining movies and they and, bring yeah. a, like attention to mm-hmm. to infectious diseases right yeah. which I still always like I feel like scientists yeah. watch it and love like you know critiquing it and picking it apart but at the end of the day we're like that was pretty badass. Yeah, yeah. it was awesome. <laughs> like, regardless uh, yeah. <laughs> of how, what we think and regardless of our personal objectives, I guess, mm-hmm. as scientists, we know it that you need this it. in the media to be able to uh, to be talked yeah. about. What I kind of wish is they had more movies 
focusing on developing countries. Yes. Because that's a trend I observe that in all... I mean, granted, it's Hollywood, but a lot of these movies are very much like, you know, oh, Brad Pitt from America, WHO, saving the world when it gets to America. Yeah. You know, or Contagion, which was very much find patient zero once it already spread everywhere else. Whereas looking at... I think it'd be really interesting to look at, you know, the start of a crazy epidemic Mm -hmm. or a crazy virus that's coming out of a very geographically isolated region Mm -hmm. or parasites Mm -hmm. and and going through that and, you know, teaching people through movies and media about what goes on in the developing world and how hard it is for them to deal with things like a cholera outbreak, which is so simple but so scary and would make for a great storyline, right? So I think that's what we need more of. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. More than all of the developed world zombie apocalypse scenarios. Yeah. And if I may point out, like, just one last thing, I think the moral lesson of, like, today's podcast is that we do have to support research into Mm -hmm. infectious diseases and I think contagion shows just that I because like the person who figured out how to culture this virus in cells was a professor from San Francisco it's not a government lab like stuck in Atlanta it is everyday hard-working scientists that figure these bench work basic scientists exactly like the more research we do the better prepared we will be the more antivirals and more vaccine development methods we have the better off we will be we have to be prepared and the only way to do that is by research correct so i think that's a perfect end Mm -hmm. to it essentially science is really really important hopefully y'all have a pretty good idea of very diverse microbiology (laughs) at this point we throw a lot of information at you but the big takeaway is i mean bench scientists and basic scientists do the work that's where the funding goes if you have a new drug a new vaccine that's it's going to come from the bench Mm -hmm. and that's where the funding needs to go and it does need to go to infectious diseases which there's clearly not enough of as everyone pointed out with their specific bug I guess. And I guess people think of like the CDC and uh, WHO, like all these major organizations, but they need to understand that these organizations themselves and Mm -hmm. the government, Mm -hmm. they all actually rely on basic scientists to do the brunt of the work. Correct. And and that's, that's part of it. And so you have to keep funding us. Right. You have to keep funding. Fund like, us. Give yeah. us money. <laughs> That's yeah. the biggest. If not you, the podcast, yeah. but just like us personally. Give my yeah. research money. Exactly. I mean, could that have? Could my pockets be heavier? Maybe. You know, it's a good <laughs> thing. But it's just one of those things where people. I guess that's that. There's a disconnect. A lot of a lot of us really think that the CDCs, the people who work there, they are heroes. But at the same time, they also rely on us knocking out the basic mm-hmm. understanding of, any, of of most things, mm-hmm. and then they can come in and do the more specialized sort of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, of attacks. Implementation, yeah. I guess. Yeah. All right. And with that, hopefully, I mean, personally, this has been my most fun episode. Hopefully, you yes. all have enjoyed uh, listening to us and learning about basic microbiology and epidemics and the next big pandemic. Um, and, you know, keep up with us next time for our next episode. Thank you. And, yeah, I guess Goodbye. we'll see you all soon. <laughs>